Hello, I'm Alec Avdikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. So, remember all the way back in the summer when I said that the podcaster Zach Twomley of When Diplomacy Fails had given my podcast a mention on Twitter? Yeah, well, for today's episode, I got a chance to speak with him about Frederick the Great's invasion of Silesia. I cannot believe how fortunate I am that I was able to have this conversation. Zach is truly a class act and is in full support of independent podcasters. Once again, this podcast has given me opportunities way beyond my expectations. He is one of my favorite podcasters, and I got the chance to speak with him. The podcast, When Diplomacy Fails, is in the description below. Please, please, please give his show a listen because he has put a ton of work into his podcast. His vast library of over 600 episodes and 10 years of podcasting speaks for himself. Zach is incredibly intelligent, and I am forever grateful for this opportunity. So yeah, in this episode, you're going to hear a wide variety of topics because I am a notorious scatterbrain. We talked about the Holy Roman Empire, the role of the Habsburgs, including the infamous Bowl of Mushrooms, and Frederick's mad scheme of taking an incredibly rich province off of one of the most powerful empires in Europe. In conclusion, I just want to say three things. Thanks to Zach for this cool chance to have a talk with him. Thank you for the people who have just started listening to my podcast. And thank you to all of you out there who have listened to this throughout the whole time, especially to the people I am close to. Unlike what I said in the first episode, my mom actually listens to my podcast. But anyway, here's a nice little recap episode with a focus on Frederick's Invasion. All right. So uh, how how are things going, Zach? Things are going great, Alec. Thank you so much for having me on or me having you on or whatever you whatever way you put it, because we're both appearing on each other's feeds. So this is going to be great. So today we're going to talk about the invasion of Silesia in December 1740 by Frederick the Great. Before he was great, he was just Frederick and I suppose, had a lot of ambitions and was a bit obsessed with glory. How, how much does your, uh, does your audience know about the uh, structure of the Holy Roman Empire? Oh, what a question. Well, I'll save you Voltaire's famous quote of not being holy an empire or really Roman at all. I suppose I just kind of brought it in there anyway. But we have gone through it a good bit with the Thirty Years' War. So we have the kind of broad spectrum. But obviously by 1740, things had things had changed a little bit. There were more electors floating around and you could argue between Saxony going for the Polish crown and Prussia trying to be a kingdom all of its own. And then you have Hanover as well, also being ruled by the British. It's kind of, it's almost like everyone's trying to take a piece of, of the pie or make their own way in the world while still being in the Holy Roman Empire. So it's a very interesting time of change. I actually like to make the analogy by that point. Essentially, they're all independent states united in very huge air quotes around one emperor. Mm. I, I like to make the analogy that uh, essentially all the United States, if they're all independent and the president was just the figurehead and sometimes 
the states would follow the lead of the president, and other times they don't, uh, hmm. such as the one time where in the Holy Roman Empire, Bavaria chose to side with France against the Holy Roman Empire in the War of Spanish Succession. Absolutely, yeah. And the interesting thing about that was that it seems as though the Allies didn't quite expect that to happen. In the initial years of the War of the Spanish Succession, Bavaria was a real pain for the Allied war plans, and it kind of soaked up a lot of attention and basically helped the French kind of reinforce their their border areas, really. Yeah, that's very true. I'd like to think that uh, the Holy Roman Empire was just... It is more so a, just a confederation of states. So you, you can make somewhat of an argument that it's, it's similar to how the EU is today, but uh, I'm sure you know much more about that than, than I do, considering you. Un- unfortunately. Your country, your country is in the European <laughs> Union, and I'm just mm-hmm. the, the bystander watching the, the dominoes fall. So, <laughs> Well, let's hope no more dominoes fall. The whole Brexit <laughs> situation is bad enough. Oh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean... European unity is something I do believe quite strongly, and I think the uh, the argument for it is is definitely strong, especially when you look at what's happening with Russia invading Ukraine and all that jazz. Oh, yeah. But yeah. certainly the the parallels are very interesting. So you'd have the EU Commission president would probably be the closest thing to the Holy Roman Emperor, but of course there is uh, a lot kind of a, a lot of independent uh, initiatives and independent policy going on outside of what the eu is kind of dictating i mean a great example of that is france and emmanuel macron the french president basically finding a way for france in in the world while using the eu as a kind of pedestal so i wonder if you could argue that some holy roman empire states while benefiting from the security and ties of the Holy Roman Empire were also trying to kind of make their own way in the world. I mean, Bavaria is a, a good example of that. Bavaria and definitely Saxony as well. Yeah, Saxony. With, with the War of Polish Succession, there was Stanislaus Leszczynski, who was a member of the Polish uh, nobility, uh, going against a Saxon. Both of those people were supported by different sides of Europe. Mm-hmm. And with, with France, with Stanislaus Leszczynski and the Saxon claimant by Austria and Russia and, and Prussia as well. Saxony could have been our Prussia. Yeah. Because if you think about it, say Saxony was the one who invades Silesia. Now you have Saxony connected with Poland mm-hmm. and they have this huge, massive super state where Prussia is completely blocked out. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. actually one of the reasons why Frederick the Great invaded Silesia. Silesia is this uh, province that used to be a part of uh, Bohemia, and Bohemia now in the Czech Republic, and Silesia will now be a part in what is today Poland. This area is extremely important to the Habsburg Empire. It has a bunch of linen industry. It was a quarter of Austria's tax revenue. And by the time Prussia overtook Silesia, it increased its population by 50%. So this is an extremely important province. Not only was uh, Frederick looking at the economic perspective, but it was he was looking at possible uh, rivals uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. So Absolutely. it wasn't just about it wasn't just about great power politics. 
it was middling power politics as well. Because at this point, Prussia was not quite large enough to be a great power, but it wasn't small enough so that it was just the, the middling power in Europe. So yeah, I would, I, I would say that because Frederick the Great did invade Silesia, just transformed so many things, not only culturally, politically, economically, I would say that overall my podcast is the uh, context you could use for behind why the French Revolution occurred. Yeah, and absolutely how the German states, basically, the the question of German dualism, as they called, will Germany go towards Berlin or will it go towards Vienna? That question really starts to appear during this period. And, and you're right, the having looked at this period from the kind of Polish perspective for my Poland is not yet lost series, it's really fascinating to ask what might have been because these Saxon kings really had a chance to kind of change the course of German history and make the question more about should it be Dresden or Vienna rather than Berlin. It was strange though, because I think Frederick might have been expecting a bit too much. He might have overestimated his Saxon neighbor because especially after the War of the Polish Succession, it didn't seem like Augustus III, the elector of Saxony and new king of Poland, it didn't seem like he was all that determined to do anything now that he'd gotten his Polish crown. And he seemed very happy to kind of just exist and use Polish resources and everything for the purposes of prestige, but not really increase his power all that much. And one thing that he was quite clear on was how much he owed his position to Russia. So in that sense, I think while on the map of Europe, uh, inter, a, a, a continuously connected landmass and, and, and statelet of Saxony and then Silesia and then Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth would have been extremely impressive. I'm not sure if Augustus III was really the right man to leverage those things because he didn't really didn't really seem like he was all that interested in leveraging anything except the resources of his country to give himself a, a nice, comfortable, quiet life. Oh, I mean, you could make that argument for almost all of the European states uh, by the time that Frederick the Great uh, came to power as king. In 1740, you had Louis XV, who as a ruler, is not very impressive at all. You had uh, King George II, who was just a puppet behind the Parliament of Great Britain. And you had Charles VI, who was one of the most, uh, I would say, lethargic, because <laughs> his court, I think on average, was about 70 years old, as far as the, the average age of the court. And this was at a time when the life expectancy, I, I know for Britain, was uh, 39 years old. And you have a Yeesh. whole bunch of 70-year-old men just talking about each other about, oh, what's the new wig of this season supposed to be like? <laughs> whereas, whereas Prussia, Prussia has the tradition that the sovereign is the first servant of the state this goes all mm -hmm. the way back to the great elector uh who is extremely underrated in prussian history and what he was able to do to make what was then brandenburg 
into a power that wasn't constantly stepped on it is it's honestly fascinating but sadly i don't have the time to go into that because frederick the great is very much more famous yeah that's very true it, it is interesting though in in that sense the great electors kind of period of rule and frederick the great's period of rule almost exactly mirror each other by about 100 years the great elector was from 1640 to i think 86 whereas and you'll be able to correct me on this frederick the great was 1740 to either 1780 or or the late 80s i'm not exactly sure which but it, it is remarkable that they're so close like that 40 to 1786 and that for frederick the great and then the great elector was till uh, 1640 to 1688 because i, I oh there we that. go yeah because i do remember that uh, frederick the great ruled eight, uh 46 years which is yeah. honestly for for that time for the amount of battles that he was in, it's it's like the old uh, the Bible quote, "Who lives by the sword dies by the sword." It's surprising that he did not die by the sword. If, <laughs> if you consider how many battles he was in, how many horses were shot under him, my goodness. Mm. Uh, uh, going back to uh, Charles the Sixth, we have to go and understand the uh, pr pragmatic sanction. Sure. Because. This this is one of the reasons why Frederick the Great had the casus belli or the uh, the the cause for war in the first place, because the House of Habsburg was able to conquer a whole bunch of Europe to oversimplify things completely by marriage. They are able to bring up their status and wealth and power by marriage, and by the time they were the top of the European hierarchy they decided, you know what? We don't want anybody else to do the same thing we did, so we're just going <laughs> to intermarry between ourselves. <laughs> it's it's actually, I don't know if you're keeping up with the latest uh, series, but House of the Dragon very much kind of, it's very reminiscent of that because you have a powerful house in, in that case, the Targaryen dynasty, who are, again, very inbred. And they have been at the top of the food chain for quite a while, in that case in Westeros. And there is also a succession crisis where the daughter of the ruling king is declared as the heir and it's never been done before and it's hugely controversial. And the only difference really is that in House of the Dragon, there's kind of stronger claimants that are, that are male to the throne, whereas in our real life, which seems strange that this actually, this stuff all, all actually happened, but in our real life, there aren't that many strong claimants other than, you know, I married her sister and that's how I'm going to claim, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting though, to see those things. I wonder where George R. R. Martin got his inspiration from. He doesn't have to look all that far into, into history. Oh no, not at all. Um, but you, you sufficed it quite well as far as talking about uh, the House of Dragon. It, it almost parallels perfectly to, to our timeline in actual history. And in, in the Pragmatic Sanction, it was the idea that uh, Charles VI of Austria's daughter, or any children that he would uh, be able to have, would be able to inherit the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. There, there were other claimants, such as Bavaria, Bavaria's Charles Albert believed that he could take over the Holy Roman Empire. And he actually would, in our timeline, create that only 
time where the Habsburgs were not the uh, emperors from the 1400s all the way until the end in 1806. So Bavaria was able to create the, the claim that Charles Albert deserved to be the Holy Roman Empire emperor. Yeah, and interestingly, it's the Wittelsbach dynasty again. I believe it was 1400 to 1410 that they'd held the crown before. And basically from 1438, the Habsburgs had it in their back pocket and wouldn't let it go. So it kind of does paint a picture of how dicey the Habsburg position was, that this legacy had been taken from them for the first time in 300 years. Austria had shown that it was very weak. Mm -hmm. Um, So Prince Eugene of Savoy, a very huge and important uh, figure in um, Austrian history, was able to help the Austrian military show that it had power until he slowly got older. And through that time, he actually had dementia. And when somebody bases, when a state bases a military, or state function on the individual, it will go wrong mm-hmm. because characteristics of that individual will slowly decline as they age and eventually die off. Sure. You, you, you would see the same thing after Frederick the Great died. Uh, state institutions that were united around Frederick the Great and his work ethic and his logistical nitpicking, it would eventually decay and so in 1806 by the time napoleon invaded prussia Mm -hmm. it was a shell of the prussian army was a shell of its former self yeah and that's only 20 years after he died like it's crazy charles the sixth was 55 years old and he was going into his reign just believing that okay we just lost to the turks I don't think things can get much worse from here. So I'm going to go on a hunting trip just to clear things up in my mind. So he goes on this hunting trip in Hungary. This is the most incredible story that I've gotten from the 1700s. During a dinner, he had this bowl of mushrooms. (laughs) And because of this bowl of mushrooms, history would change forever. Because he had food poisoning. He would eventually die later that month. And his daughter, Maria Theresa, would become the heiress of the Austrian Habsburg royal family. Charles VI believed that there was no way that Maria Theresa was actually going to rule. He, he expected that his husband would, uh, her husband would rule through proxy. And so he never spent the time to educate Maria Theresa in uh, ways to rule. So you have a very young, very inexperienced Maria Theresa on the throne of the Habsburg Empire, while everybody else, everybody in Central Europe was just looking at the Habsburgs with drool on their lips, thinking, (laughs) okay, what territory can we get from this lady? And um, the first one to strike, obviously, was Frederick the Great. He wrote to his chief minister, when one is a favorable situation, should one make use of it or not? If the Habsburgs are in such a weak position and its allies, Britain and Russia, are off distracted on their own and 
there's nothing else that could stop me. Why don't I take that opportunity? It's very famous example, Maria Theresa coming to the throne and people perceiving her as weak, but it's by no means the only time that this happened. I mean, you mentioned the Great Northern War a few times, but one of the main reasons that that war came into being was because the, well, in this case, Augustus II of Saxony, Poland, you had uh, the Russian Tsar, and then you also had the Danes all tried to attack Sweden because Charles XII was... 17 or 18 years old and they perceived him as a, a young weak inexperienced king so this tendency of of equating the power of the state with the inexperience or experience of of the new monarch is a quite a surprisingly common trend and has led to war in the past so i mean in the end of the northern war i suppose you could argue sweden's enemies were victorious so maybe from that even though it took 21 years Maybe from that they took they took heart and thought that, hey, maybe we can make lightning strike twice. So we've talked a good bit about 1740 itself and the kind of context of the period. Maybe run us through what you think would be going through Maria Theresa's mind when having been assured by Frederick himself, no less, that they were going to uphold pragmatic sanction that in fact a Prussian army is invading one of your richest provinces and intends to take it away. Silesia itself was guarded by a very small Austrian army. I'm pretty sure it was around 2,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, and a total of 3,000 men. Maria Theresa was like, well, we're screwed. <laughs> and the, and, the, and the, uh, the Austrian court was like, okay, we, we can just... Uh, give up Silesia, and Maria Theresa said no. Almost all of her court said that there's there's no way that we could defeat this strong army, especially with how our resources are spread completely thin. Uh, the Habsburg monarchy was uh, had just lost the war with the Turks and did not have very many reliable troops to count upon. Mm. But Maria Theresa was able to go to Hungary and ask for the Hungarians to mobilize different, uh, I think around, she asked for 40,000 troops and she only received about 20,000. However, she was able to piece through a bunch of uh, different soldiers throughout her uh, empire and bring an army of around 40,000 into what is uh, now the Czech Republic into what was then Bohemia. And uh, in the winter of 1740, uh, Frederick was able to uh, go and take over Silesia in a very quick lightning strike. Was only able to was able to occupy almost the entire territory in about a month, when armies were moving much slower than Frederick the Great's army at that time. Yeah. Um, one thing that one aspect that is often overlooked is logistics just in history in general. Oh, yeah, because definitely. All of Frederick the Great's advisors were really against the invasion in general. It was because he was going to invade Silesia in the winter. Yeah, the winter. It goes against all of the uh, ideas of war at, time, at the time that we should not go to war in the winter. We should just focus on our ability to, to just make it through and then 
we can we can work on the military in the in the spring but frederick said when will we have this possibility ever again he he said specifically in a quote if one does not advance one retreats and hmm. so he took that principle and he put it on silesia and with that he was able to invade and conquer silesia in in, a, in about a month so yeah it, it wasn't just politically unexpected for the austrians they, they, they might have had some kind of idea he was planning something but having assured them that he would abide by the terms at, at the very least they might have thought i mean it's the winter so even if he does attack us it's not going to be now it'll be in the spring or in the summer during the campaigning season so either way we have a bit of a breather to have our army repaired and kind of plan for the next few months but then bam <laughs> like yeah. out of nowhere not just against all the political agreements but all the kind of the expectations and norms of, of the day we, we would have thought it would be a complete logistical nightmare to try and invade anywhere in europe i mean that part of of europe during the winter like you can expect to find a good deal of snow as of course they did oh yeah now if if you want to even take this a step further uh, and look around the entire huge scope of climate back in the day this was during the little ice age as well so with global warming happening today we don't necessarily know the full feel of the full scale of the winter at that time so even though we do have poor winters now as far as uh, snow and things go like that. It was worse back in those days. Yeah. It was, it was a lot worse. Frederick had to face the elements and he also had to move his father's shiny army down south and make this daring attack. Uh, probably on the understanding that once he invaded, he wouldn't have to fight an actual pivotal battle for a few months. So in that sense, it might have been like more recommended not just the element of surprise but also tactically he could take this province that isn't very well defended and he wouldn't actually have to face an austrian army until the austrians pick their jaws off the floor and uh, find some kind of way to send an army north so in that sense it, it does seem like a good tactical decision but i'm sure maria Theresa was very depressed when she found out Oh, not just depressed. She was mad with the fury of vengeance. <laughs> I think I think that it, it goes back to the idea that Frederick actually didn't think he was going to fight at all. He just thought he was going to strong arm the Austrians into saying, um, oh, yeah, we surrender. Uh, here's Silesia for you. Uh, you can take the keys whenever you want. Uh, it, it's yours. He, he went back to Berlin after the... Uh, December campaign and let the his uh, generals on the ground deal with the different forts and strong points that were left. So he fully expected that the diplomatic work to begin at that point and Silesia would just be something that he could have now. Obviously that did not occur because Maria Theresa has revenge in her eyes and uh, it, it goes all the way to through the first Silesian War, Maria Theresa eventually creates a peace with Frederick because she was being invaded by the French and Bavarians and the Saxons all at once. There were multiple battles that were key to 
Frederick staying in Silesia. And the, the first battle that Frederick fights is the Battle of Molwitz. This was during the, the May of 1741. The Austrian uh, field marshal, Field Marshal Neiberg, was in Bohemia bringing troops and eventually counter invaded Silesia to take back the uh, former Austrian province. Now, in, in Molwitz, when the two armies finally met up, Frederick did not have his best general with him. Sh sure, he had uh, a Field Marshal Schwerin, but he left the, the famous Prince Leopold of Anhalt-Dessau behind him, uh, the, named the Old Dessauer. Frederick the Great believed that he didn't want to have tutors with him. He wanted to prove his own mettle. Huh. Uh, didn't exactly didn't exactly go i mean to spoil i mean your listeners obviously know what happens next but for the sake of my own i mean in terms of your first ever battle it didn't exactly go how frederick was expecting oh my goodness no the the prussian army deployed very slowly very very much so by the books they they created their battle line in in the snow and they marched forward slowly, and then they just stood there. But the Austrians, their their cavalry, one of the best cavalries in Europe, mind you, they decided, all right, the Prussians are about to attack us. Let's attack them first. Uh, the Austrian cavalry charged and charged and charged, and the Prussians did nothing. The Prussian cavalry did nothing. Uh, Frederick actually had to flee the battle because it looked like he was going to lose, and he did not want to be captured and become this uh, puppet king where uh, he was in Austrian captivity. During this time, it was clear to uh, Field Marshal Schwerin that all he needed to do was just reform the infantry, bring back confidence to the men, and go on a big sweeping counteroffensive against the Austrian lines. And that's exactly what happened. So... Frederick the Great won his first battle without actually being there. Yeah, it's an interesting asterisk next to his first victory that it wasn't even from like his own prowess. It was more from his subordinates. I often find with these great men in history, I mean, they're famous and deservedly so, but like with Louis XIV, they're very fortunate to have some very capable people around them. And Frederick was certainly no exception to that. He had fantastic generals, like you said, and if the soldiers had lost heart by seeing their king fleeing the field, I mean, it could have could have all been lost had like stability and morale not been restored. But I suppose that's the kind of consequences of so many years of good quality drilling and good education in, in tactics and in forbearance that his infantry basically won the day, whereas it looked for a time like the Austrian cavalry might win the day. Prussian musketry was very important. I, I do have a, a, an episode about that, uh, two, two episodes about the, the Prussian infantry. If one soldier turns and flees, that might cause other soldiers in that very platoon to leave as well and flee. Because yeah. uh, with linear warfare, you have very bunched up lines in order to create a mass fire. But you also have the trouble is if discipline breaks in any single way, you're looking on a route. And oftentimes 
after the battle when the cavalry was prowling against the enemy, that, that's when the most uh, deaths and casualties occurred. Absolutely, yeah. The the real strength of these units and the regiments that are standing there static, we imagine them stoically watching their friends fall, they knew in, in their hearts that if they shattered and, and fled, they were as good as dead. The strength of those units are in their cohesion and their discipline. And that's something that I really kind of learned from the 1600s and really the 1500s as well, those periods of so-called military revolutions. It became less about the skill of the individual soldier and more about the fighting prowess of the unit itself. And if nothing else, the firepower of one musketeer is much less than the coordinated firepower drills of several men lined up in rows. So that that explains we might look at, at those formations and wonder why they were kind of lined up like that or how they could see their friends get killed in such large numbers. And, and of course, people did rout, but there was this understanding, having drilled together, that the real strength of the unit was in its ability to stick together. I had a professor who was very who is a German culture professor who is uh, very interested in a uh, time period that we're talking about. And he said that Frederick the Great treated his army like a machine. He had uh, replaceable bits and pieces throughout the army that if one bit of the army was taken away or destroyed, it could be replaced. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a it's not a very kind of romantic way of looking at things, but we kind of we might put a kind of uh, a mask of of glory on these events, on on these battles and stuff. But the the reality is, this conflict happened because of the will, pretty much of one man. And while his soldiers might have had an attachment to him later on in his reign, it really was all about him and. The army was an instrument for him. It wasn't a group of people that he cared deeply about because, of course, if he did, they wouldn't be anywhere near this place risking their lives for his glory. Ironically, the weird thing is that he somewhat seemed to care about the individual soldiers and in that if his soldiers were fit and the best in the world, then he would have the best army in the world. But sure. he slightly cared about them individually. In that he was able to give really good eulogies later on in his life. He mm -hmm. was able to remember names, remember uh, the faces of the people individually. Ironically, give good speeches about them after they had passed away. But it took very many Prussian lives and deaths in order for him to be able to uh, seek his glory, as it were. Yeah, it's the the old adage of how how many lives is one man's glory worth? It's it kind of all comes back to that. But I mean, obviously, there was nothing exceptional about this way of looking at things. There's no real use in casting Frederick as some kind of heartless fiend who was unusual for his time. He was really just continuing on this trend of seeking glory for glory's sake, and of course, also strategic and financial reasons as well, bolstering the realm of Prussia, which would in turn bolster his own honor and prestige. The search for glory. That was the one thing he was looking for. Yeah. He was a, he was a neoclassicist. So he had read books from Sophocles to, uh, to Plutarch, to all these different classical writers. 
and he firmly believed that he was reliving the glory days of Rome. He, when he invaded Silesia, he uh, alluded to that by saying, I have crossed the Rubicon with flags flying and drums beating. Hmm. Yeah, the, the long, long shadow of Rome over this period of time is really quite fascinating. I mean, I know you get some people these days who are pretty obsessed with Rome, understandably, but it is incredible to think that 1700 years after Rome, well, I suppose 13 or 1400 after Rome, it actually fell. But the level of influence that was carried down to that point is is really incredible. Like just for those that might not be aware, the actual process of standing still with your lines of infantry and firing and then wheeling to the back of the line in a process called a countermarch while the other people in your line fire that was based on Roman tactics as well. That was built from the Dutch basically researching and looking through old ancient records for inspiration and getting this idea that if they could stand there like Roman soldiers did with their throwing throwing their javelins and then wheeling to the back of the line, if they could do that with muskets, then they would be able to redefine warfare. And it was bloody and it was difficult. And the first time that was actually done was in the year 1600. And during a battle there between the Spanish and, and the Dutch, the whole practice was arguably kind of born. And then it grew from there through military drill manuals to the point where we have in the 1740s. But really, the debt that these people owed to Rome is really incredible. Oh, I 100% agree. And uh, the the debt the debt that I owe to the history of Rome podcast is also important too. Oh yeah, so, yeah. Uh, w- without uh, Mike Duncan's history of Rome, I don't think uh, many of us would be uh, uh, podcasting right now. So. No, certainly not. No, uh, his contributions are are certainly uh, are certainly up there. You really can't deny them. I think History of England too, just because for me as a, as a non-American person, hearing an American voice, I mean, it's something that I'm kind of not, not necessarily familiar with, but I'm like, oh yeah, it's an American podcast or he's American making a podcast. But when I heard an English guy uh, as an Irish person, I was like, oh, well, if the freaking English can do it, then why can't I do it? So uh, that, that, that drove me on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I bet, yeah. So Frederick the Great was able to defeat the Austrians in uh, two battles, uh, Molwitz and Chotuzitz. And uh, at Chotuzitz, the the Austrians could have been defeated more according to Frederick the Great, but he chose not to pursue that victory to its entirety because he could uh, show Maria Theresa that he was a man that she could work with. Right. And by that time, that point in time, uh, Vienna had almost been taken multiple times, uh, either by Frederick or by the, the French and Bavarian army that we haven't actually talked about. But France and Bavaria and Saxony all went to war against Austria with Prussia in 1742. After Austria lost to the Prussians, they were in such a weakened state that it was time for Austria to make peace with Prussia. And yeah. so that's what happened in uh, June of 1742. And that is where I shall leave you at. 
<laughs> well, there is certainly a lot of juicy diplomacy to come. So, so if if you wish to see what this action would have looked like, you will have to tune in to Alex's podcast, the history of Frederick the Great or Frederick the Great's life and times. Yeah, so um, you can you can find my podcast on uh, Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or anywhere you can find a podcast platform. And I'm sure I'm sure there will be a link in your uh, show notes of of my uh, podcast. So. Well, there you have it. A nice little recap episode for understanding why these events took place. I again cannot thank Zach enough for that great time. It was a lovely conversation with an incredibly intelligent man. Please take the time to listen to Zach's podcast. He's definitely put in his work. Zach, I had a wonderful time with you, and I thought it was very fun and informative. Thank you all for listening to our talk. Also, all the important links are below, such as my email, Patreon, and social media. One last thing before we go. I recently received an email from a Nigel Betts. He thanked me for a great podcast. I really appreciated hearing from you and I hope to hear more from you all. To conclude today's podcast, I believe I shall say to you, until we meet again.